and the fifth verse, it says, In the fourteenth day of the first month, at even is the Lord's Passover. And then if you turn to Exodus chapter 11, Exodus chapter 11, and we want to begin reading in verse 4 of that chapter. It says, And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue, against man or beast, that you may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And then down to chapter 12 and verse 1, it says that the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the house wherein they shall eat. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Well, last Wednesday evening we began this new series of studies on the feasts of the Lord, the feasts of Israel. And we saw from Leviticus chapter 23 how God has set out a plan for the ages, a great prophetic calendar, if you like, uh, whereby the history uh, of uh, Israel and the Jewish people was set forth, particularly centering around their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you notice, uh, again, the first four feasts we refer to as spring feasts because that's when they took place. And the latter three feasts are autumnal feasts because they take part at this time 
of the year. The first four feasts were all fulfilled in the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the latter three feasts will yet be fulfilled at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the first in order of these seven solemn feasts is the feast of the Passover, as you can see there. And and symbolically, it portrays the foundation of the full accomplishment of God's plan. Everything works its way out from the cross, from the, the Passover. And the whole plan centers around a lamb. Now, the lamb itself, as you know, is pictorial. It pictures the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So Paul links in to uh, the Passover feast and he marks it as symbolic of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not exercising an eisegesis here. We're not imposing upon the text something of our own making and our own mind, but we're acknowledging that Scripture itself testifies that the Passover's purpose was to portray Christ as a sacrifice for us. And in Leviticus chapter 23, Moses simply lists the Passover in one verse. The rest of the feasts he takes a bit more time with and it gives a bit more detail, uh, but he lists only uh, the, the Passover in one verse. And, and one of the reasons he probably does that is because they have been celebrating the Passover from the days of the Exodus. So it wasn't unfamiliar territory. It wasn't something new to them. Uh, it was something that they had done from the time that they had left uh, Egypt uh, until the time they got up into the uh, promised land and beyond that, obviously. So Exodus chapter 12 then gives us a much more detailed account of the Passover and a much more comprehensive uh, of the picture, uh, picture of the feast uh, as it leads us to a very uh, dramatic and complete type of Christ in the Old Testament. Now the first thing I want you to see tonight is in verses 1 to 3 of Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to think about the separation of the Lamb. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. So the Passover was necessitated by the uh, tenth plague that was uh, was to befall ancient Egypt. For 400 years, the Hebrew people had been enslaved in Egypt and they had been crying out all that time for a deliverer and the Lord answered their prayer in the form of Moses. And Moses, as you know, goes to the Egyptian pharaoh. His cry is that the Lord uh, tells him to let his people go, uh, let my people go. And uh, Pharaoh rejects that cry. He uh, is, uh, refuses to uh, heed the word of Moses. And so the land of Egypt is subject to a series of plagues, terrible judgments, each one of them a challenge to the gods of Egypt. Water was turned into blood. There was frogs and lice and flies. There was hail and fire, disease and darkness. And yet Pharaoh remained 
unmoved. He was unwilling to budge. He was unwilling to bow to the God of Israel. So in the 10th plague, he and his land are to experience the death of their firstborn. God's angel of death will come sweeping through the land in one evening and every firstborn son in the land from the king all the way down to the lowest of his people would die in that one night. Now from the moment that God forewarned of this plague, he made known that his intent was to put a difference, notice this in, in chapter, uh, chapter 11 and verse 7 at the very end, to put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. That's his purpose. He wants Pharaoh to be in no doubt that he is a God who favors his people by grace and who will come to their defense and that he is beyond any means or way of staying the hand of the Lord and God is going to make this distinction between them. Now we'll say more about that difference in a bit but let me say to you from the first that the difference between the Egyptians and the Hebrews, the Israelites, hinged upon a lamb. You see the death of the firstborn was a reality for everybody who lived in Egypt, whether they were Jewish or, or, or they were Hebrews, or whether they were Egyptians, it really made no difference. The Israelites were in Egypt, and failure to obey God's prescription meant death would come to their homes just as readily as it would come to any Egyptian home. And friends, God is no respecter of persons. We ought to, ought to understand that tonight. You know, we we bless the land of Israel. We bless the Jewish people. We're grateful for their role in, uh, in, in preserving the oracles of God and, and indeed delivering the Messiah uh, to the world uh, through their nation. But understand that God is no respecter of persons. That when it comes to the matter of salvation, the Jew is required to trust Christ every bit as much as the Gentile. Whether an Israelite lived or died, in the Passover depended upon what he did with the lamb. Now notice in, uh, in, uh, verse, uh, in verse 1, uh, sorry, verse 3 of chapter 12, um, it says, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month shall they, shall, they shall take to them every man a lamb. Every home was required to separate onto itself a lamb, to set apart a lamb. And the Passover lamb was to be chosen on the 10th day, but it wouldn't die until the 14th day. In other words, it was in the possession of the family for four days prior to its slaughter. For four days, that lamb was appointed unto death, and there was no escape for it. Now, this speaks to us of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Lord Jesus Christ, not for four days, but for the better part of four years, uh, ministered upon this earth. And at the very outset of his ministry, he makes his way to the banks of the Jordan River, where John was baptizing. And as he approaches the river, John the Baptist cries out, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin 
of the world. Now I understand in that moment everybody understood the, the uh, typology that uh, John was using. They understood the nature and the place of the Lamb in its centrality to the sacrifices of Israel. And they should have understood that in that moment, among all of the great crowds that were gathered there with John, that he was singling Jesus out. In that moment, he was separating him apart from everyone else as, an, as, the, uh, as, the, uh, as the one who would die on behalf of the people. You see, before he even uttered the first words of his ministry, before he preached his first sermon, uh, before he called a single disciple, before he performed a single miracle, he was appointed unto death. He was separated from the flock of Israel. Jesus was marked to death before he was actually slain. And it wasn't a surprise to God that he died, to God the Father, that he died upon the cross, nor was it a shock to God the Son that that should happen to him. All along, the purpose of God was to put Christ to the cross. That was ever God's intent. Peter records that we're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained. Let those words sink in. He wasn't plan B. The cross wasn't an afterthought. God knew all along what was going to become of his son. In fact, God decreed what would become of his son. And so it says, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. John, writing in Revelation 13, 8, describes him as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was a dead man walking from the very first breath. From the very first breath. You know, the world views the death of Christ as a martyrdom, as a matter of fate, of fate uh, as a, perhaps a, a tragic miscarriage of human justice. But the Bible portrays it as an act of God, an appointment decreed from eternity past. Jesus was separated as the Lamb and appointed unto death. Now I want you to see in verses 4 and 5 the superiority of the Lamb. He says, and if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. All right, let's stop there. Every word of scripture matters. And in this fifth verse, you have this little line, your lamb shall be without blemish. Now that's really important. They weren't to take any old lamb, but they were to look for a spotless lamb. And they were very scrupulous about this, very careful about this. If the lamb had the slightest little bruise, if the lamb had a little nick, if it had caught its skin upon a thorn and there was a little nick, it was disqualified. If it had a limp, it was disqualified. If it, was, if it was missing a limb, it was disqualified. If it was blind, 
it was disqualified. In other words, you couldn't fob off in the Passover feast any lamb that was of less value to you. You couldn't bring, uh, bring the lamb along to the temple or to the tabernacle uh, like you, know, you and I take our, our unwanted goods to a charity shop. Well, this isn't much use to me, so I'll just give it to charity. You couldn't say, well, this lamb isn't much good to me now, so I'll just take it to the temple. No, you had to take the best of your lambs. The sacrifice had to be perfect. And why did it have to be perfect? Because the Lord Jesus Christ was perfect. And is perfect. We say of him that he was impeccable. That's the phrase that theologians use when they speak of the nature of Christ. They speak of the impeccability of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means he was and is the only perfect man. As Peter says it, states it, he was without blemish. He was without spot. Now, we might be tempted to say, well, what about Adam? Wasn't Adam a perfect man? You know, he was created in the beginning, and he had no sin to begin with. He, he hadn't sinned, and, you know, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't created to die. He was created to live until you have the catastrophe of the, of the fall. Wasn't Adam perfect? Well, in, in a certain sense, I suppose that's true in terms of his creation. But it's not true in terms of his character. You see, the difference between Adam as the first man and Jesus is this. Adam was able to sin and Jesus was not. Jesus was not able to sin. It wasn't possible for him to sin. Adam was entirely human, whereas Jesus was both human and divine. He is God's man and man's God, 100% human 100% divine. He's not 50% human and 50% divine. You say, I don't understand that. You know, that's the mystery of the incarnation. But insofar as he was divine, you know, the Bible tells us it's not possible for God to sin. It's not possible for God to lie. There there are many things that is possible. Well, everything's possible to God except to sin. And because he embodies divinity, the Lord Jesus was, found himself in a place where he was not, it was not possible for him to sin. Jesus could not sin. That's why he says in John 14, 30, listen to what he says, for the prince of this world, who's the prince of this world? Well, that's Satan, isn't it? The prince of this world cometh, and listen to what he says, and hath nothing in me. There is nothing he can do that would tempt me. You know, there are certain sins that perhaps you can think about and you think, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel that I could be tempted to do that. You know, um, I've never been tempted to smoke. It's just never been something that I have remotely been interested in. I've never liked it. You know, I grew up in a home where my parents smoked when I was a little boy and I hated it when they smoked. And, you know, I determined as a child that I would never smoke. And, and that's how it is. But if you came along and said to me, Pastor, I'll give you a million pounds if you'll smoke, <laughs> I might rethink it, might not. Because I'd be tempted for the money. And you see, there is within us this capacity for temptation, but that was not within the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the prince of this world cometh, he says that he found nothing to me. There was nothing the devil could have offered him. 
At one point he offers him the kingdoms of the world. And still he didn't surrender to the temptation. He's beyond it. There was nothing in his nature that could respond to temptation. No hidden fault. He's completely flawless. There's no skeletons in his closet. So much so that Judas, who ultimately betrays him, confesses, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And Pilate, who searched and searched and searched to find some fault with him that he could legitimately uh, condemn him to die, said, I find no fault in him. Hebrews says in chapter 5 and verse 9 of Christ, and being made perfect, he became the author of salvation, uh, the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Isaiah in chapter 53 says of him, he has done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. And Hebrews again says he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And, and coming back, Peter says, he did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. I don't care how good a person thinks they are. There isn't anybody who can say they have not sinned at some time. It's simply an impossibility. So the superiority of the lamb was necessary and essential to the Passover. Now I want you to think about the significance of the lamb. Let's pick up at the end of verse 5. And we're going to look at four features of this lamb. It says that the lamb was to be a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. Remember, they selected on the 10th day. They keep it till the 14th day. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take up the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Eat not of it raw nor sodden at all with water. But roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning, ye shall burn with fire. Now we come to a passage like this, and you read down those details, and they're very specific details, and you and you think it's just maybe some kind of peculiar list of regulations and rules and and requirements but there are reasons why these requirements are given and uh, some of them are very practical reasons you know they're uh, told to, that they shall eat it with their loins girded well obviously they've got to make a run for it they've got so it's a very practical reason that they're given that particular instruction you know they couldn't run if they were robed down to their feet they couldn't run as fast as they would if they would clear their knees and allow themselves a bit of a chance to get away and so uh, God gives them that rule from a practical point of view but other rules are pictorial and uh, they're, they're picturing something they all have whether they're practical or pictorial they all have a purpose but our interest this evening is with those pictorial elements of the Passover you see the passage is significant in respect to Christ now notice the first thing that is said about the lamb that it was to be a, a meal of the first 
year. That's what it said there in verse 5. A male of the first year. Now we come to, a, you know, we come to this and we say, well, why is this the, you know, why, why is this the case? Why has it got to be a male of the first year? Why can't I take a newborn lamb? Uh, why couldn't I take an older lamb? You know, why can't I take an older sheep? Why have I got to have one that's a year old? Well, the Hebrew is very specific. Uh, the male, it says a male, the son of a year. That means it was to be one year old. So you had to go through your flock and you had to identify those animals that were a year old and you had to take the best of those year old lambs and sacrifice it. So the lamb was not to be too young, nor was it to be too old. In other words, it was to die in the fullness of its strength. How does that apply to Jesus then? Well, you think about when Jesus died. He didn't die in his old age. He didn't die when he was, you know, 65 or 70 or 80 or 90 years of age. That was not God's purpose. Nor did he die in childhood, nor boyhood, nor in his youth, nor even in his early adulthood. He dies at the age of 33 and a half. The psalmist has him appeal, Oh my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. That is, in the peak of life, in the fullness of his strength. You know, in our culture, when you turn 40, people say you're over the hill. I got news for you. You're over the hill when you're 33. Seven years before you thought. <laughs> so if you're already 33 and not yet 40, this was not the meeting to come to you. You've got some bad news tonight. You're over the hill already. That's the peak of your physical strength. When you're 33 years of age. And so the Lord Jesus dies just like this lamb would be a male of the first year at the very height of its physical well-being. He dies when he is in the fullness of his strength as a man. Then notice the second thing. The lamb was to be killed in the evening. Verse 6. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Literally, between the two evenings. Or if you like, late afternoon. In Jewish tradition, there are two moments considered as evening. The moment that the sun begins to drop in the sky, it begins to set. And of course, that happens at one minute past twelve, right after noon, the sun starts to um, set, it starts to uh, fall in, on the horizon. So that's the, that's the first evening. And then the second evening that they recognize is the end of the day. In a Jewish day, uh, the, end of the, day the day ends at 6 p.m. Okay, so that's uh, basically it. Between those two times, between those two evenings, the lamb has to be killed. So he's killed, if you like, in twilight. He's killed at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. From 12 to 6 to 6 hours, halfway point is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And of course, that's exactly when the Lord Jesus died. And we know from the Gospels that he died 
at the ninth hour. That's the ninth hour from six o'clock in the morning. From six o'clock in the morning plus nine hours takes you to three o'clock in the afternoon. It takes you into that part of the day which the Jewish people refer to as the evening. By the way, notice that although the Passover involved every household having a representative lamb, in this text you never read of lambs in plural, but always to the lamb singular. Uh, You know, in in the next verse, it it talks about the whole congregation of Israel shall kill it. Not it shall kill them. It doesn't say you shall kill them. It says they shall kill it. Always singular. And so whilst the eyes of the Israelites in Egypt was upon their flocks, and of course many lambs would have died on the day of Passover, uh, still with all, God was casting his eye much further down the line to one lamb, the lamb of Calvary. So he never refers to lambs plural. He always speaks of the lamb. A lamb, the lamb, your lamb, it. Always singular. Now the third point that I want to make, and I've touched on it already, is that the lamb had to be sacrificed before all. It has to be sacrificed before the whole assembly of the congregation. And I just read verse 6 to you. It shall keep, you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. You know what the cross there stood both Jews and Gentiles side by side. I was reading an article the other day that was explaining how that Gentiles became anti-Semitic and the suggestion was that it was because the church blamed the Jews for the death of Jesus. Well, the Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus But let's not forget it was a Gentile who condemned him to die. And it was Gentile soldiers who oversaw his walk to the cross. And it was Gentile soldiers who mocked him and beat him and ultimately nailed him to the tree. So we can't say it was just the Jews. They were the problem. It was Jews and Gentiles together. In fact, the scripture says that, that the Jews together with the Gentiles crucified him. Not only that, but there was Jews there, there were Gentiles there, but the Jews weren't just Israelites. It was Passover time when Jesus dies and Jews came in from other nations. So there were many nationalities of Jews. And there was every strata of Jewish society represented there from the high priest to the scribes to the Pharisees to the Sadducees all the way down to the thieves hanging by his side. Uh, to the drunkards who relished his death and, and, and sang of his demise, to those who enjoyed it as a public spectacle. There was men there, we know for sure. There was women, we know there for sure. There was young there and old there. You know, the scripture tells us about a man who's uh, coming into Jerusalem for the Passover and, and, and with his son. Sons, Alexander and Rufus. There was Israelite nobility there. And what do you find in Matthew chapter 27? When Pilate, desirous to let him go, declares to the gathered crowd, what shall I do then with Jesus which is called the Christ? Listen to what scripture says. 
They all say unto him. They all said it. The Jews said it. I suspect some of the Gentiles said it. You know, you get caught up in a moment. You're going you're gonna to go with the crowd. You're going to do what the crowd does. They all said it. Certainly all of the Jewish society said it. All the congregation of Israel said it. They say unto him, let him be crucified. He died before the whole congregation of Israel. And then, fourthly, and this is interesting, the lamb was to be completely burnt. Look at verse 8. It says, and they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat of it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, not boiled, but roast with fire, his head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof, every part of him. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remaineth, if you have any leftovers of it until the morning, you shall burn with fire. So you couldn't take your Passover lamb and say, you know, we've eaten enough, we'll have the rest of that tomorrow. No, no, no. What wasn't eaten was destroyed by fire. It was burnt. Now, why had it to be roasted? Why couldn't you just boil the meat? Uh, You know, uh, why couldn't you have uh, eaten it raw? Uh, Because, friends, fire is always associated with judgment. Look in Lamentations for a moment. Lamentations, (coughs) chapter 1. Lamentations, chapter 1. Of course, Lamentations written by Jeremiah, a lament over the city of Jerusalem and its fall. And in verses 12 and 13, he he says this, and of course, in the primary context and with respect to his own experience, he's speaking about the the city and and so on, but with a a, a far contact, in a far sense, he's speaking about Christ. And he says in verse 12, Is it nothing to you, All ye that pass by, behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. We sing, man of sorrows, what a name. Is there any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger? You see, it's now personalized. It's not just about a city, it's about a person. And then he says in verse 13, From above he sent fire into my bones. In Psalm 102, the Messiah cries out, For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned as an hearth, because of thine indignation and thy wrath. Psalm 32, 4 says, My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. His cry from the cross was, I thirst. Understand, the cross is not an accident, but an altar. It's the place of sacrifice, of judgment, where God pours out his wrath, his anger upon his own son. His hatred of our sin is poured out on him. And nothing of this sacrifice, according to Exodus 12, was to remain until the morning. When the next day dawned, after the Passover, 
There was to be no trace of the, of the lamb. It was to be gone. Well, what happened with the Lord Jesus? You remember that, that Jesus was crucified at Passover. The next day was a high Sabbath, the scripture tells us. And the Jews were keen that the crucifixion should not continue beyond that day into the next. You see, the practice of the Romans was that if you crucified someone, you just left them to hang on the tree. They didn't go out and get you and bury you. The whole purpose was to send a message to the populace that they were, that they were oppressing. It said, hey, look, you mess with Rome, this is what you get. If we give you an instruction, you better behave yourself because this is what you get. You come into town and, and before you got to the city wall, there was people hanging there to remind you the Romans were in charge. Every day they were crucifying people. And so uh, the Jews were concerned, uh, you know, having orchestrated this crucifixion, having pressed for it, uh, they were concerned that these men should not hang upon the cross on the high Sabbath day. And so what did they do? Well, John tells us the Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the morning after the crucifixion, Jesus' body was gone. If you went back up to the scene of Calvary, he wasn't there. He was gone. His body requested by Joseph and buried out of sight. A meal of the first year, to be killed in the evening, to be sacrificed before all, to be completely burned. He fulfills all of those criteria. And then I want you to think about the salvation of the Lamb. Look in verses 12 through 14 of Exodus chapter 12. The Lord says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. And you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Israel was told that on the night of the last plague, the Lord's death angel would sweep through the land and that the firstborn of every home would die. Now, as I said earlier, this was as true for the Hebrew people as it was for the Egyptian people. They were not sheltered from the judgment. Uh, they would not have been spared from the judgment. And yet God was intent to put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. So what was the difference? How was this difference marked? It was marked by the application of the blood on the doorposts of their homes and upon the lintel of their homes. And as the Jewish father set the basin of lamb's blood at the threshold of his floor, and he took the hyssop, and he began to paint the posts 
and the head of the door, he instantly makes the markings of a cross. He's instantly portraying Christ. The difference between the Egyptian and the Jew was not in the matter of their behavior or of their nature. Both were sinners. The difference was in the blood. That's what makes the difference. The blood made a difference. The cross for us makes the difference. You see, if it wasn't for the blood of the Lamb, if it wasn't for the blood of Christ, none of us would be saved. That's why the Bible says, without the shedding of blood is no remission. In Christ, God provided for our salvation the sacrificial Lamb. And that marvelous provision is laid before us in the first of the seven feasts of the Lord, a foundational feast. Thank God tonight that we can say, as Paul said, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening.